Hi, I'm David Crow, and this is episode 244 of The Infectious Myth. Email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com. That's Crow with an E. Join the discussion and like us at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at infectiousmyth. Listen Tuesdays at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on prn.fm or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or other programs. You can listen to any of the last five episodes over the phone by dialing the U.S. number 701-719-0990 and following the instructions. prn.fm has voicemail. Call 862-800-6805. And as well as a message or question for the show, leave your name and indicate that it's for the infectious myth. If you dial either of these numbers, long-distance charges may apply. I don't know you're a listener until I hear from you, so send me a message letting me know how you stay in touch with the show and what you'd like about it. If you include your mailing address, I'll send you a little thank you gift, one of the bookmarks I make by hand using my own photographs. I do really love to hear from my listeners. Don't be shy. You can make a one-time donation to the expenses of the show via PayPal using the email david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com. Or you can commit to monthly donations at patreon.com or liberapay.com, where we are also Infectious Myth, but one word. We appreciate all our listeners, but if you want the show to continue to grow and improve, consider paying a small amount for the information that you're gleaning, for the support you get for some non-mainstream ideas, and the challenges you get to others. I know you like independent media, I know you think it's important that there's media that's not contaminated by the sources of revenue, whether those sources are the pharmaceutical industry uh, or other places that will influence, inevitably influence the news, even if the, uh, the media workers don't believe so. But you can't rely on other people to do everything for you, and it doesn't have to be a, a big burden. Even a few dollars a month makes a difference, and it will gradually mean that I can spend more time on this podcast, maybe hire an engineer, maybe show up at some conferences where I can get some good interviews, um, other things that I can spend money on in order to do a better job. If you'd like me to speak at a meeting of an organization you're a member of, On any topic that you think I have an interesting and worthwhile opinion on, I'd be happy to discuss this with you. I appreciate you commenting and suggesting guests. I appreciate your financial support as well. Thanks for listening and for recommending this show to your friends. Well, this week we have a fair amount of time for feedback, so let's get to that. Glenn Bovert, who's a poppers activist uh, in inhalant drugs mainly used by gay men, in Australia, commented on the Harry Habercoss interview, episode 242. David, a very important interview with Harry Habercoss. Keep them coming. I would add that great weight should be given to coincidences, as well as intuition, instinct, experience, insight, reflection, one's bullshit detector, Freudian slips, and good old-fashioned research. One does not always need to conduct an experiment, for example, to know something. Intelligence agencies act on leads or hunches all the time to protect national security, the national interest, public safety, and personal privacy. Children have died from drinking poppers. So have adults, maybe, acting like children. 
Gays with AIDS used poppers. Gays with AIDS did not, but maybe they were using crystal meth or cocaine. You mentioned the Canadian Airlines flight attendant who was apparently AIDS patient zero. I met with uh, state politicians in Australia some years ago, and the assistant interjected by stating that nitrites were removed from airline medical kits some decades ago as they were being taken and used by airline staff for personal purposes, presumably the Five Mile High Club or something similar. The same politician stated that I was only interested in headlines. No, I'm interested in the truth, solutions as well as a cure for AIDS. My bullshit detector sounded the alarm on poppers some time ago, but people don't appear to be listening. Well, at least they're not the people who really should be listening. Donald on Facebook made some comments about the Heather Mason show on gender self-ID in prisons, episode 243. Heather Mason made very good points about gender self-ID and the problems it causes to the safety of biologically female prisoners. I also learned a lot in the first 15 minutes when she described how she got hooked on drugs. I hope her family listens to the podcast and finds it in their hearts to forgive Heather Mason for her past transition. Transgressions. I went to causebar.ca to donate, but they had reached their goal, and I signed up to the newsletter. I guess that's a sign of a good organization when they raise enough money and then they stop accepting donations for a while. That's not very common. Judith, by email, wrote about the same uh, episode. I'm very interested in Heather's stories, and I will meet her in real life this weekend in Ottawa. Your speaking voice is just lovely. I'm listening now to the podcast. Well, thanks for the comment on my voice. Maybe I have a future on the evening news or something. Uh, Tom wrote via email to ask about donations. On your podcast, you mentioned two ways to donate to the show. One is patreon.com, but I couldn't make out the second. Okay, patreon.com is p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com and liberapay.com, l-i-b-e-r-a-p-a-y.com, liberapay.com. I did a little extra show on the coronavirus, and uh, Brian, via email, wrote, Very nicely done. Thanks. You are very articulate. Appreciate the information. Eric went way back to episode 183, where I talked to James McComiskey about the existence or not of viruses. Thanks for making the, ep the podcast and spreading the truth. I'm listening to the episode with James McComiskey. Very good. You guys mentioned so many interesting papers. I can only remember a couple of them now. You mentioned there were two papers in the Journal of Virology, maybe about 90% impurities in HIV. Uh, yes, and I... Um, they were in the March 1997 issue of the Journal of Virology. And although at one point they were behind a paywall, I just recently checked, and uh, both of them are available. And if anybody emails me, I can give you the direct link to them. Also, you mentioned a flu experiment where they swabbed nasal secretions of the sick onto the noses of prisoners, and none of them got sick. Okay, well, this was from a book called The Plague of the Spanish Lady, which was published in 1974, and the author's last name was Collier. So he wrote, here's some excerpts of what he wrote about this episode. Dr. Joseph Goldberger of the U.S. Public Health Service 
had to confess to nothing less than total failure. The hundred volunteers he had selected had first snuffed a pure culture of bacillus, bacteria, into their nostrils, and no one took sick. Now note that in those days they believed that flu was probably a bacteria, um, there were no electron microscopes, nobody could see particles smaller. Um, now influenza is believed to be uh, a virus. Not sure I agree with that, but that's what most people believe. So continuing. Next, they were injected with a brew made up of 13 different strains of the Pfeiffer bacillus. Result, negative. Their throats had been treated with the mucus secretions of men already sick. Now remember, these were prisoners who were promised um, you know, some kind of reduction in their sentence if they participated in these, in these sentences. This all kind of sounds disgusting, even if um, these men didn't get sick. But I'm not sure I would want the snot from somebody uh, with a really bad case of the flu put into my mouth. But they did it, and every man remained defiantly healthy. Seemingly, they even thrived on being injected with the blood of ailing men. Finally, in the most deadly experiment of all, they had permitted hospital patients far gone with the sickness to cough in their face. For seven days thereafter, Goldberger and his team had watched them closely. But every man, even in the hopes of contracting the disease in the service of mankind, remained fit and cheerful. I guess they were cheerful, realizing that they were going to get out of prison um, earlier. But that was exposure to the supposed 1918 flu. And you might say, well, it was 1918 and nobody could isolate a virus. As I said, there's no electron microscopes. Technology was much more primitive. But they were directly exposing these people to the nasal secretions and other aspects which, if anything contains the influenza virus, it should be those things. So even if they thought it was a bacteria, they didn't really matter to these experiments. Whatever the infectious agent was should have been transmitted to these people, but these healthy prisoners did not get sick, so their experiment was a total failure. Again, we tackle a transgender issue. This time, the issue of biological males and female sports. Gender identity issues are tailor-made for the show, not just because the impact of this ideology is so wide-ranging, but because the mainstream media has historically not touched the issues, although this is starting to change. In the U.S., those who oppose transgender ideology have generally been characterized as right-wing, conservative, religious. Not entirely true, but there's an element of truth to it. But in the UK, the movement contains a lot of left-wing feminists. Almost all members are sympathizers of the Labour Party, the UK's main left-wing party. But now there is a leadership campaign, and all the candidates, most notably the women, are falling over themselves to see who can erase women's rights to same-sex spaces the fastest. Organizations advocating for same-sex spaces and that homosexuality is a same-sex attraction, not a same-gender attraction, have been called hate groups by the leadership of the party, leaving a lot of feminists and LGB people politically homeless. Well, sports is no less controversial as we shall see. Let's go to our guest now.
Gregory Brown has been a professor of exercise science at the Department of Kinesiology and Sports Sciences at the University of Nebraska in Kearney for over a decade. In 1999, he received an MS degree from Iowa State in exercise and sports science. In 2002, a PhD from Iowa State in health and per human performance with a specialty in the biological basis of physical activity. He's authored more than 40 peer-reviewed papers and presented technical information more than 50 times in the field of exercise science. Journals that have accepted his paper include the American Journal of Physiology, the International Journal of Exercise Science, the Journal of Applied Physiology. His specific area of research is the endocrine response to testosterone supplementation in men and women. Recently, he submitted an expert declaration to a court in a case involving the issue of whether biological men self-declared as trans women should be able to participate as women in women's sports. Welcome to the show, Professor Brown. Well, thank you, David. Thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Yes. Well, I think this is an important issue and a lot of people are just becoming aware of it. But can you briefly describe the main concerns that resulted in, in the court case for which you gave an expert declaration? All right. So um, this, I guess this whole case is centered in Connecticut, where there were two boys competing in girls' athletics, and these boys identified as transgender. And that's why they were allowed to compete in girls' athletics. And they won the competitions in the sprinting events, the 200 and 400 meters. And there were several girls who competed in those events who subsequently contacted Alliance Defending Freedom. And they're working with the Alliance Defending Freedom. They filed a complaint with the U.S. Department of Education. And just recently, they have filed a lawsuit to try and get an injunction to prevent boy, transgender, male to female boys from competing in girls' athletics on the basis these girls fit, think that it is unfair that they have to compete against boys in women's sports. Um, you gave me a lot of information, or, or rather I should say your expert declaration plus some other sources gave a, a lot of information. So one of the sources says that at the age of 10, the average boy is 3% is faster than a girl but by 15 that's a 10 percent difference and it stays consistent throughout their life and for jumping it's about six percent at age 10 20 percent by age 16 and stays consistent i mean are the, are those sort of typical male female differences yeah absolutely i mean if we look at children you know look at little kids there's a little bit of difference between boys and girls generally boys are going to outperform girls but again, it's small, 3% or so. But once puberty hits, generally around age 10 or 11 or so, you really see this divergence between the performance of boys and the performance of girls. With We would typically expect in running events, boys and men are going to perform 10% better than girls or women. And when we get up to strength events, you might see a 30% difference. And for context, what would the difference be between the winner in an Olympic running event and the second place in terms of a percentage? Oh, um, one of, a, a term you see thrown out a lot of times is we're talking about a quarter of a percent difference between first and second place quite often. So if you have a 10% disadvantage due to your female biology, like you're out of the running, right? Oh yeah, yeah, you're absolutely out of running. 
Um, I, I guess a case in point that helps exemplify this is last year in Division II college athletics, C.C. Telfer, who was male and identified as female, won the won the event. And I can't remember off the top of my head if it was a 200 or 400 meter. I think it was 200 meters, but it could be 400 by over a second and a half above the first, you know, the next women woman in line. And so this is a transgender male to female athlete that won by a second and a half in a sprinting event. And typically you would expect the spread from first through seventh place to be about a second and a half. Wow. Um, so in the history of sports, it, like women's sports is relatively new. I mean, it maybe a hundred, 200 years ago, women's sports was pretty much forbidden or ignored or whatever, but have, Male and female sports always been segregated, at least uh, at the time of puberty and above? You know, that's interesting. It's hard to say exactly, but generally speaking, yes, there have been men's sports and women's sports. For a long time, there wasn't even really women's sports. It was in 1972 when that Title IX was passed that we saw the development of women's sports in the United States and also spreading around the world. And the purpose of Title IX, one of the purposes, was really to make it so women had equal opportunities in athletics that men did. And so that's when you started to see the increase in the number of women basketball teams and track athletes and things like that, because now there were opportunities for them to compete. Yes. Um, uh, another indication of the difference, uh, I think in your work, you had a table that showed that for the 100 meters running, there were 124 boys in 2017 that exceeded the best adult female result for that year and around 2,500 adult men. Yes, yes. And that's comparing the world record for women compared right. to the number of, again, these are boys under 18. So 124 boys under 18 were faster than the world record for women. And that women's world record has stood for a number of years. Right, right. Um, it's this it, nowadays. This is an issue of uh, is a big issue with trans athletes who want the right to run as women. They feel like they're women, therefore they should run as women. But I found some quotes by some feminists which seem to be saying similar things, or well, maybe not similar, but seem to also be saying that male and female physical differences are not that great. And I'd just like you to comment on the, you know, what you as an expert in this area feel about the scientific validity of these statements. So a, a woman named Jagger in 1983 in a book on human biology and feminism wrote, in some societies, females lower social status has meant that they've been fed less. And so the lack of nutrition has had the effect of making them smaller in size. So it, it, is this a reasonable scientific statement? My, what I have seen, if we look at modern athletics, no. Since 1972, again, with the increase in female athletics, um, there was a huge increase in women's performance the first 10 or 15 years after mm -hmm. Title IX. But since the mid-1980s, really, a lot of the differences between men's athletic performance and women's athletic performance has pretty much stabilized at that 10% greater performance for men and up to 30% in strength. Um, and again, that's stabilized. And so that would tell me that the first 15 years may be due to women developing the 
training habits and training facilities and opportunities to optimize their physical performance. But in the last 30 some odd years, women have been able to train the same men, women have been able to have same access to sports nutrition and other dietary abilities as men, and we still see the differences in male and female performance. Um, yes. Um, so here's another one, um, uh, an author named Fausto Sterling. Um, uniformity in muscle shape, size, and strength within sex categories is not caused entirely by biological factors, but depends heavily on exercise opportunities. If males and females are allowed the same opportunities and equal encouragement to exercise, it's thought that bodily dimorphism would diminish. I mean, I guess you've kind of uh, answered this um you're basically saying it's it's equalized and there's still a difference is that yeah correct yeah that's true i mean and and we can see this just if we look at the average individual the average american man is you know much taller than the average american woman he outweighs the average american woman um and you see that across societies and also we look at muscle mass men typically have 40 percent more muscle mass than women and that is even, you know, in a society like you might see in Scandinavia, which is as, you know, equal rights for everyone as you can find. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the information that we have on physiology, on anatomy, on these anatomical and physiological differences between men and women, they're in every textbook on the topic. They are, you know, supported by tons and tons of research showing that men are stronger, men are faster, men are taller, men have greater bone mineral density, men have larger hearts, they have higher hemoglobin concentrations, all these things that will give them an advantage. And it, it comes down to the, you know, XX or XY chromosomes. Yes. Um, like some of the things you listed as, as different, I think you mentioned uh, some of them just now, but muscle mass, muscle strength, less body fat, higher bone mineral density, greater bone strength, higher hemoglobin concentrations, like more oxygen retention, larger hearts, larger coronary blood vessels, larger overall statures, lungs, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on throughout the whole body. Yes, yes, it does. And, and also, I guess, the pelvic structure, because women have a wider pelvis to allow a baby to be born, and that's not optimal for running either. That, that's right. The, the shape of the woman's pelvis um, it, it causes a different Q angle, a more severe Q angle in a woman. That's the quadriceps angle. It's basically the angle between the hip and the knee, um, which predisposes women to a greater incidence of anterior cruciate ligament injuries. And it is not favorable for running biomechanics. And, mm -hmm. you know, in addition to, you know, muscular factors, there are biomechanical factors that are going to make it so women are not going to compete on an equal footing with a man. And those factors are not completely reversed if someone goes through gender transition treatment to go from male to female. It, that treatment is not going to make a man shorter. Yes. So, um, okay, so I got a couple of things that you've, you've kind of brought up. So in your opinion, you know, if, if women can never achieve the same status, uh, you know, the same speed, they can't throw, jump as far as men. What is the benefit of sports to women, uh, right? Like, why should we have an emphasis on women being involved in, in sports? Well, there are so many good things that come from sports, right? Whether it is the opportunity to train your body and make your body as healthy as possible, 
um, the ability to compete against others. Competition can be very good and very you know good for a person to help them to push themselves. Um, let's face it, getting beat in competition can also be very good for you. If you are able to say, yes, it was a fair competition and my opponent beat me simply because they're a you know, better athlete in this area, but it was as fair as possible. Those are, those are all good things that come from sports. Um, and, and so we shouldn't deny women the opportunity. We should allow women to compete against women and allow men to compete against men. Um, a couple of other things maybe you can comment on that I sort of put a list together. One of them I think is very important in the United States where university education can be very expensive is athletic scholarships. Oh, thank you for bringing that up. And that is, again, one of the big things that has affected athletics with Title IX legislation is that universities that are receiving federal, federal funding need to give opportunities for female athletes that are proportional to the opportunities for male athletes. Mm -hmm. um, now, good, bad, or indifferent, we've all heard the stories about some universities that have had to cancel men's sports to stay in Title IX compliance, but this has given opportunities for women's sports, which then opens up opportunities for women to get education, which, right. you know, as you mentioned, be very expensive, so a college scholarship can be a huge deal for anybody to be able to an education. Right, it's, and it can get, um, a smart athletic girl into a university, you know, like Harvard or Yale or something that they never would have had an opportunity to without. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. And then, it, you know, introduce them to all the benefits of being in a university with education and meeting people from different cultures and, you know, having professors from different areas of specialization, opening up career fields that maybe they hadn't thought of before. And they go to the university, find out that there's things they can major in. Um, and it could help, you know, we hear a lot about the gap in engineering and other things, but if a woman gets a college scholarship, she could have an opportunity to then major in engineering or computer science or something like that. Right. Without the scholarship, she wouldn't have that opportunity. Right. Uh, another thing I wondered if you know anything about this, I feel that women have to deal with a, lo a lot more body image issues than men or girls, let's say, you know, this starts as they're starting, their body's starting to develop, that there is all these perfect, uh, sexually attractive women in magazines and girls are all supposed to look like that, you know? Um, but does sports help with body image issues? Like it gives an alternative standard against which to measure your body as opposed to the, the beautiful movie star um, image? <laughs> Well, you know, that, that's a good point is that sports can really give a person an opportunity to have positive feedback on their ability to train, their ability to compete, being part of a team, getting positive feedback when they perform well, when they try hard, those types of things that can counter some of the negative effects of being, you know, seeing Glamour magazine or other things like that that encourage us all to have amazing abs and nice you know, tan skin and things like that. Sports can be an opportunity to get beyond those types of purely aesthetic definitions of what one's self can be. Um, and yes, we can see opportunities where women who maybe don't fit the mold of a feminine woman because they are, you know, just the way their body is structured, they can compete in throwing events with other mm -hmm. and have that welcome and that participation. And, you know, you can see the skinnier girls that perhaps you know they don't have the raw sex appeal that we might think of a woman should have based on certain societal standards 
they can get involved in running events or swimming or other things like mm -hmm. that. So there's great opportunities there. Um, one thing that struck me about the whole transgender debate is that, um, you know, for the past, as long as I can remember, 50 years or so, the Olympics and other elite sports organizations have struggled against drugs. And even, you know, famous athletes like Lance Armstrong have been brought down because they were caught cheating with drugs. And there's this ideal that when you compete at the Olympics, you're competing as a human being. Um, okay, you've had good nutrition and you've had good training, but your body is what you were born with. You know, you developed it the right way through exercise and training. You did not take drugs. Um, maybe the most extreme example would be the 1980s East German women's swimmers. But now with the transgender, you, you cannot really be a transgender athlete in either direction without taking hormones, which are drugs. Yeah, so so doesn't this contradict the whole ethos of athletics? You know, I, I agree with you completely on that. I think it's, it is interesting that they are saying female athletes can only have testosterone concentrations of a certain amount, but yet a transgender male to female athlete can have testosterone concentrations that are way higher than you would expect the average woman to have. Or if it is a woman transitioning to male, yeah, she is taking steroids, which would then, of course, give her an advantage against other women. And yeah, I, I, I don't understand how people can look at that and not say, well, don't take performance enhancing drugs unless you're a transgender athlete. Yes. And I mean, it's, it, we'll, we'll get into transgender women who are taking drugs to hormones to lower their testosterone level um, in a second. But I wanted to ask you, you've, you said you're, you've studied testosterone supplementation a lot. So, I, I know that's illegal for high-level sports. So under what context is testosterone supplementation used? Okay, so um, this was, it was actually testosterone precursors. So mm -hmm. androstenedione, DHEA, androstenediol. Those were sold as nutritional supplements, over-the-counter nutritional supplements in the later 80s and early 90s. Mm -hmm. um, so if you remember, Mark McGuire, 1998, set the home run record in Major League Baseball. And at that time, he was taking androstenedione to purportedly enhance his testosterone concentrations. And at the time, it was, it was legal to take that because it wasn't a banned anabolic steroid. And so a lot of people were taking those types of supplements. They were a major market force in the supplement industry. And so we did research on them, actually found out that they didn't boost testosterone concentrations in men, but they did boost testosterone concentrations in women. In 2004, the US Congress re revised the Anabolic Steroid Control Act, and then they did another revision on 2014, which have made it so that those products can't be sold over the counter. And most sporting organizations somewhere between the mid 90s to the early 2000s also came through and said, you can't take these testosterone precursor supplements. Uh, okay, well, the, you say they're precursors, but then you also said they don't increase testosterone in males so but they're doing something to improve performance so so what do you know what they're actually doing well the research on them actually showed that in men unless you were taking huge huge doses they actually didn't have any kind of ergogenic effects they didn't increase muscle strength um, didn't reduce body fat things like that 
if someone were taking, you know, if the recommended dose was 100 milligrams three times a day, and if someone were taking, say, 300 milligrams three times a day, then there might have been ergogenic mm -hmm. effect. So it was a dose effect. Um, and again, that was in men. And again, this comes down to the differences between men and women. In a man's body, there are testes that secrete testosterone. And so taking these hormonal precursors to testosterone, the body said, well, we don't need this and excreted it in other ways. In right. a woman's body, however, where they don't have testes to make testosterone, you give them the precursors and their body did convert it to testosterone. Okay, so for men, it was more of a placebo than anything else? Absolutely, yeah, for men, it was a placebo. In interesting. Okay, so um, we know that through male puberty, uh, males produce a lot of testosterone, which changes the body and produces a man out of a boy. Uh, women have different hormones and women are produced out of girls. Um, so the standard now appears to be lowering testosterone levels. And I, I noted that one big, is it the IOC has, has said, okay, well now we're gonna have five nanomoles or something as opposed to 10. But does reducing testosterone levels reduce performance from the male range to the female range? Uh, reducing testosterone levels will reduce performance in men, but at this point, there's actually not really any good scientific data that would really evaluate it in a great standpoint. So we look at things at muscular strength, we look at muscle mass, we look at body composition, and even after a man has been on testosterone-lowering drugs for a year to three years, they still have more muscle mass than would be expected in a comparable woman. About 25% more muscle mass, 25% greater bone mineral density than would be expected in a comparable woman, and they still have greater strength than in a comparable woman. So even though you, know, you take the testosterone-lowering drugs, it doesn't convert a man's body completely into a woman's body. Yes, I, I, I mean, how is your skeleton going to be reduced in in size and strength? I mean, uh, and, unless you create osteoporosis or something, exactly. <laughs> I don't see how how that could possibly happen? Yeah, some people have. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that's exactly it. That's another one of the main things: is taking the testosterone lowering drugs doesn't cause you to get shorter. Right, right, but. Uh, Another concern I have is for these trans athletes themselves or for trans people in general is like the health effects of taking hormones that don't belong in your body. Um, I don't know if we've seen that yet, but I, I mean, all of these hormones have pretty significant long-term health effects. They do. They do. And some of the research looking at those health effects in men trans taking the transgender hormones to transition to a woman they have still increased cardiovascular disease risk factors, um, even higher than they would have as a man. So again, women usually have lower cardiovascular disease factors, but taking all these hormones and stuff and hormone suppressants actually increases the risk for heart disease and things like that. Okay, if we go back in, in time, like this, uh, this acceptance of trans athletes has been going on uh, for quite a while. I, I think you sent me, um, a link of, of a speech by uh, Emma Hilton, I think. She goes yeah. by Fonda Beatles or something on Twitter. I don't know yes. exactly where that came from. 
But in her speech, I think it was there, she said that the standard in 2003 in international athletics was that a, a biological male had to have their testes removed, had to have legal status changed to female, and had to be on hormones. In 2015, this was changed to no surgery needed at all, a sworn declaration instead of uh, a change of legal status, and 12 months of, of low testosterone. Is that sort of an accurate uh, assessment of the change in the standard for accepting uh, trans women into sports? That is. That is. The, the standards were eased between 2003 and then 2015. And in that talk, she also summarizes a lot of the research, a lot of the same research I summarize in this legal declaration, mm. that shows that really there was not a massive change in the scientific knowledge between 2003 and 2015 to really support that lowering of the IOC standards. There, the research that came out really still showed, okay, if men transition to women, they still have more bone mineral density than a woman would have. They still have more muscle mass than a woman would have. They still have greater muscle strength than a woman would have. So I'm kind of unclear why the IOC made that decision. Well, there's one paper that's mentioned a bit, uh, I think it's by Joanna Harper on eight runners. And that I think it's Joanna to Wagner. But... Oh, okay, okay, sorry, Joanna Wagner on eight runners. And uh, is Joanna Wagner a trans woman? I that, that's, I, that's what I thought is I thought Joanna Wagner was a trans woman, but I have to say I'm not 100% certain. Okay. But it was a paper on eight runners, and it, it was based on, I think, self-reported information and memories about their performance. Yeah. And that seemed to have an outsized influence. Is there, I mean, there's been more and more research coming out. Is it fairly consistent that uh, trans women maintain biological male um, uh, uh, characteristics? Yes, yes. The research that is coming out is still pretty consistent that a transgender male to female athlete does not lose all the advantages of male puberty. They still have a higher bone mineral density, still have higher muscle mass, muscle strength, um, still greater stature, those types of things. It's, it's been consistent over 20 years, basically, of research. The, I mean, the IOC and other organizations seems to obsess about testosterone levels. I believe, uh, I sort of mentioned this earlier, but I have it in front of me now, but the current level, I believe, is 10 nanomoles per liter of testosterone, and they're thinking of dropping it to five. But 10 nanomoles, I believe, is about five times the level in women athletes. Yes, it's true. The typical female should have a testosterone about two nanomoles per liter. And so with the IOC standard at 10 nanomoles, that's about half of what a man's should be, but it's still five times higher than what a woman's testosterone level should be. Yeah, so even putting aside the fact that the, these biological males, um, you know, depending on how old they were when they started taking hormones, have had the benefit of testosterone in their body you know, for maybe 10 years, um, even putting that aside, they're still allowed to, to uh, compete with dramatically higher testosterone levels. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And this kind of comes back to your previous point about the idea of it's not ethical for athletes to increase their testosterone concentrations because we know that it has ergogenic effects. And yet the allowance of female 
athletes with a two nanomole per liter testosterone normal to compete against male to female athletes with a five-fold higher testosterone seems kind of you know like a cognitive dissonance issue. Yes, I, I, I really don't get it. I just think that when a bureaucracy locks into a particular um, uh, viewpoint, there's, there's going to be a lot of loss of face if they have to radically change that viewpoint and then to say, you know, testosterone levels are not a good marker of, of performance differences between men and women, therefore we've got to do something completely different. Or maybe we have to drop the whole thing and admit that biological males will always have advantages over females in athletics. Therefore, they shouldn't be able to compete. That would be a huge step back. Yeah, I think you're very right. It's very, very difficult to walk back from those types of statements. I think I, I'm not, you know, a team sport athlete myself. I'm an outdoorsy guy, but um, so I don't, I don't, you know, haven't experienced, you know being on a team, running teams, suspecting that maybe somebody was taking some performance enhancing drugs or whatever. But a second reason for not allowing performance enhancing drugs to me is the harm it does to those athletes when they grow up. I recently read an article on the East German women who took all kinds of hormones, testosterone, many other things. And for, I think in the 1980s, they completely dominated women's swimming. And it was all through cheating with drugs. But afterwards, those women discovered that they were sterile, that they had uh, deformed babies, that they had numerous health problems. And so I think, and I, I don't know if, if you know if this is actually explicit, but I think one of the reasons to stop athletes taking drugs is because when an 18-year-old makes a decision to take a drug to win a race when they're 18, they're not thinking about how their body's going to be at the age of 38. That's absolutely right. And that's actually a big reason why Congress passed the Anabolic Steroid Control Act and the revisions is not just fairness in sports, but looking out for the health of the athletes. Um, taking performance enhancing drugs like anabolic steroids, it increases the risk for heart disease, increases the risk for various other diseases, whether it's liver problems or reproductive issues, as you mentioned. And so that's another one of the reasons why a lot of sporting organizations do ban the use of performance enhancing drugs. It's not just fairness, it is also health of the athletes. It, yes, and, and so with transgender people in general, they're all being encouraged to take substances that will cause long-term health problems. And for athletics to essentially encourage this um, seems to not be supporting the second reason not to take drugs is in that it causes you harm. It's, it's not fair with, to other athletes, but it also causes you long-term harm, which is the reason to oppose it. No, that, that's a great point. That's a great point. One thing that some people have said is, um, you know, there's not really that many transgender women who want to be athletes. So what's the big deal? You know, if, if um, you know, if 1% of people in women's sports are, are trans transgender, how can this make any difference? What's your opinion? Well, um, uh, sure, if we look at it on the, you know, large level like that, there's how many thousand female athletes and maybe only 1% are transgender. But if we go to this case in Connecticut, it sure makes a difference to the girls that didn't win first or second place in their senior year of high school 
for an event that they've been training for probably since they were 12 years old. And now they don't get a medal stand. They don't get a chance on the medal stand. They don't get offered a college scholarship. Um, we all know, you know, if you look at high school sports or college sports, there are only so many spots on the varsity roster. Mm -hmm. So it may only be one male that takes a spot off the varsity roster, but that means that's one female that doesn't have that opportunity. In and the other, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, and, and then the other thing that becomes, you know, you've got to wonder about is if a girl is interested in a sport, but she knows she's not going to be state champion because of a transgender athlete, is that going to discourage her from participating in the sport? Yes, I mean, those that 1% of athletes of, of biological males could rise to the top and take all the first places and then it becomes a big problem, even though it's only a relatively small number of athletes. Absolutely. And, and discouraging women to perform sports, which is basically erasing all the gains made by um, the changes in law in the United States to try to equalize opportunities between male and females for sports. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Another issue which doesn't really apply so much to individual sports like um, uh, running, but to team sports uh, is safety. Uh, I know there's the case of Fallon Fox who who cracked the skull of a woman in a in some kind of fight. Um, but a, a lot of uh, biological males are much, much larger and in sports like rugby um, are, I think, could pose a safety hazard to biological women who are competing with them. A absolutely. Um, not that we've seen the safety hazard, but a great example of this is there is a male to female transgender athlete competing on a basketball team for a college in California. And this individual is six feet, six inches tall. And what a surprise, played <laughs> the league in rebounds. Uh, I mean, how many women are six feet, six inches tall? Like that must Ex be like 0.01% of the population. Exactly. It's a very small amount. And then again, you throw in the body stature of a male, even taking hormones and stuff, they're still taller, they've still got broader shoulders. And so, yes, there's a definite adva advantage there. And, you know, there's many quotes by that, um, the one female fighter that was beaten up quite severely by Fallon Fox, who said she had never been hit so hard. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, I can see that becoming uh, a really big problem. Uh, I think more uh, attention is being played to things like running where there's there's lots of issues but you know safety because you're running in a separate lane is, is not really an issue but you know in a lot of sports even a, a sport like basketball is not really a contact sport but there is still is contact between athletes and um, you know hit, hitting a large muscular man for a much smaller less muscular woman is is potentially going to cause serious injury Absolutely. And, and you look under the basket a lot of times. There's a lot of pushing and shoving going on under the basket for rebounds, trying to stay within mm -hmm. the realm of the rules, but still, yeah, a larger individual is going to move the smaller individual much more easily, and the smaller individual is then at a disadvantage or risk for injury. Yes. Um, I don't know how this is going to change. I know that there is an increasing number of people who 
are objecting to it, but the the slur of being transphobic is used quite successfully to silence people. I'm sure there's a lot of it's not just men, uh, women who are opposed to this. There's a lot of dads who want their daughters to succeed in sports who are upset when they when they see this um, going on. Yeah, yeah, it, it, I can see as a parent. Yes, I would be very, very discouraged and frustrated if my daughter, if her safety were at risk or her just the ability to to be a champion was impaired because of an athlete with a physiological, biological, anatomical advantage that, and, and again, it's not just that it's a woman that was born larger than another woman. This is a man who has transitioned with to, or tried to transition to a woman. Yes, I mean, in, in within women, there's a, there's a lot of variation in strength and size and stuff. It's just the dr dramatic difference on average between males and females. and at the very elite level of, I mean, in, in some sports, it's, it's much greater, like say with weightlifting, there's an even greater uh, difference. I think it was some About 30%. 30%. Yeah, um, yeah. And, that, so and those are in sports where they, where they control for body mass. So you compete in a weight class. Right. A woman in a weight class competing against a man in the same weight class, the man's going to be 30% stronger than her, even though they both have the same body mass. Right, because of a different uh, distribution of muscle and fat. And yep. uh, muscle is different, I understand, in men than in, in women. Well, the distribution of the muscle is different. I mean, if we get down to the, the subcellular level, the proteins are the same. But men generally have more muscle mass in their upper body than women. Um, overall, men have more muscle mass. And men generally just their muscles are bigger than women because they have more protein in the muscles and those types of things. Yes. Um, what is the status of the court case you were involved with? Do you know where it is right now? Um, right now, basically, a case, a, a, a lawsuit has been filed. And that's all I know. Um, yeah, that, that's okay. it. Okay, it hasn't gone further. I noticed in the declaration it said that you did not accept compensation for your declaration, and I think normally expert witnesses do. So what was your motivation for donating your time to produce this report for this court case? Um, well, uh, as I have seen this, I just I see people reporting, well, science doesn't support that transgender athletes have an advantage. And so I got looking into it and I was wondering what science were these people talking about when I couldn't find it, when everything I was finding showing that transgender male to female athletes still have greater muscle mass and bone mineral density and all these physiologic advantages. And I wasn't finding it. And so then I, when I saw that Alliance Defending Freedom was picking up this case of these Connecticut female runners, um, I actually contacted them and said, is there anything I can do to be helpful? And they asked me to help prepare this legal declaration summarizing the information. And it just, it seems like the right thing to do. Yes, well, that's, that's great. A lot of the um, world is, is driven by money these days, especially legal cases where, you know, highly paid experts come in to argue the, the different sides and you, you have to fear that maybe sometimes the, the money they're receiving from one side or the other is having an influence on their opinions. Um, so it's nice to see somebody who cares about an issue who wants to just state um, 
an, an opinion, their opinion, an educated opinion, obviously based on a lot of um, research. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, it just seemed like the right thing to do. Yes. Um, so I would just like to ask you whether you have any other comments you'd like to make in this area, other things that we haven't discussed about this or, or other things that you're working on that you're, you think are important? Um, well, you've mentioned this and we've kind of talked about it. This is a very, very difficult issue because the idea of transgenderism, of course, is very, very personal to people. Um, and I'm trying to just stick with the physiological known scientific differences between males and females and the effects of the transgender therapy and how it still allows males to have, you know, transgender athletes to have an advantage over cisgender females. Um, yeah, I, I can't think of anything else particularly I want to add. Other than just, it's actually been fascinating looking at all of this and seeing how many male athletes outperform the world record females and in all sorts of areas. That's been very interesting to look at and informative. Yes, and, and I, I think, um, you know, like I, I mentioned a couple of quotes from feminists, it's, it's kind of interesting that there's been a bit of a change in how feminists have approached sports because they've come up against reality, uh, which is that male and female bodies are very different and that influences a lot of things in life and has maybe the biggest influence of all is in sports. And if you try to deny that difference, well, theoretically we should have co-ed sports, but if that was the case, there would be no women in elite sports. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, you'd have your token women on the team, but they all sat on the bench because they can't compete with the men. Yeah, I mean, for a lot of sports, it would be uh, ridiculous. Like if you look at American football, for example, like it would be so clearly unsafe to have women on a team with those yeah. enormous men. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> like I would yeah. be unsafe on the field <laughs> and most yeah. men. But I mean, we're not talking, I guess that's one thing about sports is we're, we're not really talking about the average man, right? The average man is not on an NFL team. The men who right. make it to an NFL team are at the extreme level of muscle development of biological males. They're not yeah. average in, in, in that athletic way. Yep. Yeah. And I guess that's one thing people have, and you mentioned this earlier, where people say, well, at these elite athletes, the difference is smaller. And it really isn't. With the elite athletes, the differences between men and women are still there, physiologically, anatomically. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, there are you know, there are lesser differences in say running than in the, in the sports that require a lot of muscle mass, mm -hmm. but still a 10% difference. If the difference between first and seventh is maybe 1% time difference or 2%, then a 10% difference based on anatomy is, is exclusionary. You're yeah. just not going to get there. Yeah. It's huge. Yes. Well, I really like to thank you for sharing your knowledge with me today and uh, for contributing to this court case, which I think is, is important and um, hopefully we'll, we'll hear where it goes fairly soon. All right, well, thank you, Dave. It's been a pleasure talking with you. A pleasure to talk to you too. Thank you very much. You're welcome, have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to episode 244 of The Infectious Myth. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion for a future guest, 
please email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com. Like us at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at infectiousmyth. Commit to monthly donations of any amount to infectiousmyth on patreon.com or liberapay.com. Until next week, thank you and goodbye.